0: up, wake up, wake up, wake up, up you wake, up you wake, up you wake, up you wake. This is your host Stephen Buja, your voice of choice here on the Oscar Watch podcast, the podcast where we look back at past Best Picture winners for your reconsideration. Joining me on this sweltering summer day is Amy Thomason. Amy, how are you doing? Staying cool? I'm really
1: enjoying your impression there, my friends, and that's the truth, Ruth.
0: I can't pull that off. <laughs> well, I know I can't
1: pull
0: that off, but I love it. Yeah. Well, we 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 try to to make it fun and special here I on will the never podcast. Be as,
1: cool as Samuel L. Jackson, and that's the truth, Ruth. Yeah.
0: None of us will be. Well, Amy, we are here to talk a very special film, very relevant now, especially considering that a filmmaker has just released a new film last week that is getting a lot of buzz and attention, Uh, we're talking about Spike Lee, of course, and the 1989 film Do the Right Thing, which falls into our should have been a contender category, as it was not nominated for best picture that year, despite heavy lobbying on many, many fronts, even up to and including during the Academy Awards, but we cannot do this alone. So we are bringing in a little extra firepower. We have a guest. He is a published author, a freelance production guy, in television podcast host, all around great, great dude. He has been on the show before. We welcome him back to the family, Mr. Stephen Van Patten, SVP.
2: Thank
0: you. Hey, how are you doing today?
2: I'm real, real good. How you guys doing?
0: Oh, we're we're fine. We're staying cool. It's a little hot out, and we are happy to have you around. So, uh, I am told by you that you have a new book coming out in two weeks called yes. Killer Genius Two, the sequel. That's right, Killer okay.
2: Genius Two: Attack of the Gym Rats. Uh, it will make sense when you read it. Uh, mm-hmm. Basically. Uh, the serial killer from my first serial killer novel, uh, <laughs> killer genius. She kills because she cares. She goes up against a couple of
0: Russian serial killers. Ooh, oh, a serial killer, serial kill off, however that's right. called. All right, okay, that sound that sounds like a lot of fun. Where can we find this book when it gets published?
2: Um, it'll be available on all digital platforms. Uh, it actually it. As a matter of fact, it's already available digitally. Uh, And then, uh, of course, good old Amazon and, of course, my website, uh, www.laughingblackvampire.com. Yes,
0: yes. And you should really check out all of his works. He has a great vampire series called Brookwater's Curse, which uh, I'm not going to lie, I am actually featured in. As a as a main character, and it's so that's, that's that's pretty cool. I'm
1: totally gonna have to read them.
0: <laughs> you are you're gonna have to read them. They're 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 a lot of fun. Yes. Uh, Steve's a he's a great author. Great dude. Great to have you on here to talk. you. Do the right Thanks. thing. Yes. obviously Th- Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Do the right thing. Directed by Spike Lee. Written by Spike Lee. Starring Spike Lee, Danny Aiello, Ruby Dee, Ozzie Davis. Mm-hmm. John Totoro, John Carlo Esposito, Richard Edson, Bill Nunn, and so many other. Hey, I know that guy from any number of things over the past 20 or 30 years. All right, this is the part of the show where we ask personal connections, history with this movie. And we will start with our guest, SVP. What is your history with Do the Right Thing?
2: Well, um, back in 1989, uh, the number and all. Uh, I was actually, uh, at Long Island University, uh, and Spike was actually, uh, screening his dailies on the premises. Really? So. Oh my uh,
1: gosh, that is so awesome.
2: <laughs> so, a, a few of us had to help sort of facilitate that, um, uh, a very good friend of mine, Harold Williams, ended up being the assistant projectionist. Really? Um, for this, and then... A couple of us actually went to the rap party. I mean, we kind of were very low key and didn't really talk to anybody, but you know, uh, just the fact that we were there in, in the same room as uh, Ozzy and Ruby for a couple of hours and whatever—it's, um, yeah, it was a very uh, significant thing for a college kid. Oh, definitely.
1: Okay, my jealous, my envy right now is like through the roof. That is the coolest thing I think I've ever heard, and I'm so jealous of you right now.
2: Oh well, I mean, yeah. I mean it, we, it, it,
1: like I might need to sit down with you post show and just ask you twenty thousand questions. Well, that, <laughs> I won't, I
0: awesome. won't. But oh my god, okay,
1: that's amazing. That,
0: that's amazing. That is so, def- yeah. definitely the personal connection right there. Absolutely. Uh, did you see the film when it came out in theaters? <laughs> When it came out, um, there
2: was a like a side screening for the students and whatever, uh, and of course to prepare for our discussion now, uh, I watched it a couple of nights ago. I,
0: I mean, I should certainly hope so, but hey, you know, it's no judgment if you if you hadn't seen it, if you're just going on going off memory. Uh, yeah, Amy, and how about you? Where? Uh, what's your history with this film? New I Jersey have- girl.
1: Yeah, I'm a Jersey girl. I have no cool, interesting story. Um, I think I watched it for the first time in college. Because I said this in Driving Miss Daisy. I was in, like, fifth grade when this movie came out. So I didn't mm-hmm. see it in theaters. But I saw it in college, and I thought it was amazing. And then I think it was a long time so- in between. I watched it with my husband. And then, of course, he and I had a whole you know, debrief after the movie. Mm -hmm. And then I watched it for for this, and now I want to watch it, like, 18 more times because it's really one of those movies that you have more to talk about the more you see it, the more things that you notice, the more different perspectives that you see every time you watch it, which is why it's a masterpiece. Spoiler alert.
0: It's a masterpiece. I, I don't think anyone is going to think we're going to be negative. To movie, <laughs> especially after our... the
1: reason we have our should have been a contender, is pretty much for this movie, and then essentially,
0: yeah. I mean, the Essentially, like, yeah. Biggest, this is
1: the biggest The biggest snub, really.
0: This is the biggest snub, considering that our last week's episode was Driving Miss Daisy, the film that did win Best Picture that year, and how it yeah, in some ways it does address many of the same mm-hmm. issues, but in a just a Terrible, terrible way that is uh, so bad and has aged so poorly that it is rage-inducing, and so we of course had to be like, no, no, we got to do, we got to do the right thing here. Oh God, that's bad pun. Sorry, sorry, that pun was uh, not really intended. So we just we just had to come in and talk but about.
1: you it. made it. But you made it work. Don't I try. I
0: try. I've had. <laughs> no, I've had enough experience here. Uh, my experience uh, uh, with this is, uh, I saw it. I. I, I I only recently I saw this movie within the first time within the last five years, which is uh embarrassing, and I feel kind of ashamed about it. it was, I was six when it came out in theaters and growing up in very, very white Massachusetts. Well, you know you, you don't uh, you don't see the Spike Lee movies uh, all that much.
2: but imagine it might not have been playing everywhere.
0: Yeah, I can I can see that there was uh I can I, what what was it what was it what was it like in New York City uh here where obviously it takes place in Brooklyn the the film do you do you, do you recall what the the atmosphere the experience was like among the you know various neighborhoods around the city
2: Well, overall um it was viewed as an extremely positive thing. Um I mean any any time a, a black man gets to do something that progressive Uh, as what Spike managed to pull off with with this just being his third film. Um, I want to say, you know, everybody was very amped about the whole thing. Um, And the fact that it came out as well as it did, um, you know, just only enhanced the experience. Yeah,
0: it's a frighteningly well-made picture. Was
1: it, when was it released? Was it released in the summertime?
2: It was released in 89, yeah. And it was, if I remember correctly, it was... <clears throat> what awards it did win? Most of those fell in around eighty nine,
0: ninety. Yeah, yeah. You know, but perfect sun. It's a perfect summer movie in in some mm-hmm. ways because it is about. Uh, it takes place over twenty four hours, about a single day in the life of a neighborhood and the many various characters you meet along the way. Um, I obviously my neighborhood was had multiple cul de sacs and there were lawns and. You have giant giant ass houses, so my experience growing up was nothing like this at all uh i was- i was wondering the did spike capture uh the ag- how accurate was spike in capturing the just the makeup of of an inner city neighborhood in the eighties a an experience that i have no i have no frame of reference for on my own personal on my own personal personal behalf
2: That's what um I'd say more or less pretty spot on. Uh I mean everybody's everybody's block was different, you know, for the most part. But um and I can't say that like it, it it's like the the way this movie is constructed, it's like everybody has a almost two personal relationship with everybody. Like I can't remember necessarily uh being that friendly with any one Korean grocer <laughs> say, or, or or anything like that. But um, just the basic dynamics, like who was the tough guy, who was the loudmouth, who was, you know, the guy that was definitely, you know, going to end up in jail, the guy that was definitely going to make something out of himself. You, you all, you, it was almost um, real life. What did have that sort of like uh, archetype kind of build up, as you know, you move from neighborhood to neighborhood. So from that from that perspective, I would say Spike was pretty, pretty much spot on. Yes. Hmm.
0: Nice. Very, very nice. You mentioned. No, I guess we'll we'll get into the archetype discussion because we have a lot of characters moving around. But considering that uh, most of America viewed black uh, black films as more of the black exploitation of the uh, '70s and early '80s, I'm looking at the the wall in in your back and like, hey, I think uh, is there, is that a Blackula poster I see or or, or something? Exactly.
2: Actually, a couple. There's uh, one from Black and one from Scream. Black Scream is uh, William Marshall and Pam Greer are up there having a little conversation.
0: <laughs> yeah. Okay. It just. on my
2: uh, other, uh, you know, vampire movie related stuff up here. Yeah. And of course, the covers from my vampire series. So, yes.
0: Uh, He's a, he, likes, nice. he, he likes the vampires. He likes the vampires. It just. I was thinking about how um, different it must have been for us in white America. To have viewed, watched this movie and seen these characters be take on an air of reality and pathos and uh, dignity that I think was not always afforded to them. And then my my experience with the uh, the black exploitation is very few. But just simply calling it the black exploitation movement feels like we are uh, putting it at the kids' table, as it were. It's like these aren't this is this is the popular film. Oscar. Now it's like, yeah, you're fine, but you know, really, we're gonna we're gonna put you over here, and the rest of us are gonna go about doing having our in artistic pictures. But with do the right thing, you cannot deny the artistic merit of the film then as is now as well. And I, I, I guess in this rant, what are your thoughts on that, SVP? Did you did oh. you was the atmosphere changed after the movie came out, et cetera?
2: It was changed a little bit. I mean, looking back on. The black exploitation era in general really the only thing that uh was lacking from a lot of those movies was the financing was yeah. the polish um you know take blackula for example a story just the story of itself an african prince who confronts count dracula and kind of ends up going down a horrible whirlpool because of that uh with the right special effects, I mean, the movie itself right now, as we would watch it on, you know, this being the year 2018, it it doesn't have um, the special effects, but the man playing Lacula, a.k.a. Prince Mama Walde, uh, certainly brings gravitas to the role, as do a a lot of the other actors in a lot of the other old exploitation movies, Gordon's War, even Shaft. Shaft with a little more money behind it would be just as good as any other detective movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> you know, it, it, and that's really all it boiled down to. Um, you know, even today, you know, we have the situation where it finally took black Panther and the money that that made for everybody to, to finally say, Oh, okay. These movies can, as you said, move from the kids table because, you know and 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 basically, it's entertainment. Everything all boils down to money. Yeah. Um, you know, and this, the, the money that someone's going to invest and the money that ultimately the the project reaps. Uh, and I think what every black filmmaker <coughs> filmmaker has had to struggle with is getting the financing and then, of course being taken seriously. Meanwhile, uh, the the flip side of it is, you know, Ozzie Davis and Ruby D, before they were in Do the right thing. They were in tons of movies together and separately, and they can't deny that those two people, you know, alone don't bring uh, everything to the table that any mainstream, any any considered mainstream actor would bring. So, uh, I I guess the uh, the thing is, it's black cinema has always suffered from being underestimated, Mm. and. You know, hopefully, you know it, it, things will change. And the funny thing is, as I bring up, as I bring up Black Panther now, that certainly has helped things. Do the right thing helped things back when it was released. So it's, you know, what it's, it's all about slow baby steps, I guess. You know, so.
0: too slow uh, in a lot of instances. But did not win at that year's show, so stick around, this should be fun. Thank
1: you, and hello the world. um, We've got five great films here, and they're great for one reason, because they tell the truth. But there is one film missing from this list that deserves to be on it, because ironically, it might tell the biggest truth of all and that's do the right thing. Yes. 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 Okay, so on to business.
0: We are hanging out in 1989 for a bit. We previously discussed the Best Picture winner, Driving Miss Daisy, and you should really listen to that. It's a it's a fun one, really well and truly And now we're here to talk, should have been a contender, with Do the Right Thing. Obviously, that means Do the Right Thing was not nominated for Best Picture, but that is not to say it did not get a couple of nominations at the 62nd Annual Awards. Amy, what were they?
1: Best Supporting Actor for Danny Mm Aiello, and Best Screenplay for Spike Lee.
0: Spike Lee. That's
1: it. That's What's it.
0: Only two. It, 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 that feels very um. light. It's like definitely screenplay. That was a powerhouse year in screenplay. It also featured Sex Lies and Videotape, Crimes and Misdemeanors, and uh, the winner of Dead Boat Society, which I think compared to all of these like really doesn't stand up in terms of a screenplay. But uh, folks. Should what else? Who else should have been nominated for in this movie? Are there is there a technical feature that maybe should have gotten noticed? Anyone? I oh.
1: I will let our guests go first. Thank you. Oh.
2: Well, Ernest Dickerson comes to mind as uh, the DP, cinematographer, or you know something along those lines. Um, sure. I mean just the the color palette of the movie. Take you know, giving into account the shower scenes and the street and the contrasts that uh, were created, uh, even the, the the demonstrations of how hot it was outside, like yeah. that sticks in my mind quite a bit.
0: Definitely, uh, it's and to have done to create such a very real visceral world as he did. It's like I am I kind of, I feel as though I always know where I am oriented in the neighborhood it's uh it's gr- it's great work by the DP the editing deserves a huge shout out uh mm. just com- compared to especially compared to driving Miss daisy and a lot of the movies of the time this movie is alive it it it, yeah. it how how it is, how the story is being told is as important as the story is being told Cause it the way they they cut back and forth the 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 push ins just everything—it's—it's—it's it's, it's in motion. It's constant. It's dynamic. Uh, really, really great editing uh, on that on that front. Absolutely, I would I would say that. Amy, what's uh, what's on your list?
1: First, I want to address what you both said. Great world building, mm-hmm. amazing. Um, and I'll hopefully have time to give my specifics in a bit. But. Um, we often bring up David Lean. He's one of the people that we bring up along with the movie Network every single week where sure. you feel like you live in the world. You don't just feel – you can feel the humidity. You can almost smell what the street smells like.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: You feel that ice cube when he's putting it on Tina's forehead. Like all of those things, like you feel like you are on that street smelling the pizza, I texted Steve watching it saying, I would kill for a slice of pizza right now.
0: You're very jealous that and, I can go to the corner and And get one.
1: making the guy, because we had a pizzeria like that in my hometown of Glen Rock, New Jersey. The guy was an immigrant. It's still there. It's called John's Boys Pizzeria. Small place, not a big flashy place. Right. But mm-hmm. that's where we went. And the huge hunk of ice and the shaving the ice and all of that stuff, as much as I was from the suburbs of New Jersey, were the things of my childhood. So it totally brought all that back. Um, the screenplay, amazing. It's one of those things where it almost feels to me a little bit like a documentary where I can't believe that these people are just actors and that they haven't known each other forever.
0: One Mm -hmm. of the other
1: things, um best picture, obviously best director for Spike Lee. I mean, that's a crime, a crime against humanity. (laughs) Um, I think Danny Aiello should have gotten a lead actor nomination, even though that was a big year for actors. You've got Cruise for um, Born on the Fourth of July, DDL, all of them. I still think he was the lead actor in the movie. Best supporting actor for the following people: uh, John Turturro. Seriously.
0: Yep.
1: Yeah. Uh, Ossie Davis. Yep. Giancarlo Esposito. Best supporting actress for Ruby Day, best supporting actress for Rosie Perez. Yeah. At least. Yeah. At least.
0: Yeah, it's this is one of those movies where you realize it's criminal the Academy does not have a best ensemble award because this would win. This would win every single year. It's uh incredible. It had like even smaller faces, like I think this was this this was Martin Lawrence's first movie. Yes it was. It's, Him
2: and Rosie Perez, they debuted.
0: It's yes. madness. And you and you just go, Oh yeah, it's Martin Lawrence like you you always realize somebody had a first movie. And then you right. go, Oh, wait, the first movie was Do the Right Thing? Oh, well Jesus, but, that's that's amazing.
1: But the thing that's so great about this and was so bad about driving this Daisy is we talked about how the characters seemed to at the end of the scene, like that was it. They didn't have a life outside of what we saw. These people, you felt like this was what they did every day. Um, there's a girl, and I never remember what her name was, but she's the one that hung out with Martin Lawrence and she wore the pink hat.
2: Yes.
1: She was great. I mean, these people seemed real. When they were not on screen, you knew that they were off making mischief somewhere in that neighborhood.
0: Definitely. The three,
1: Slick Willie and the two men, I freaking loved them. They were such a riot.
2: Well, they that, that, again, you know, just speaking to, you know, the, the kind of characters that you definitely had on a block, you definitely had a, you know, and on my block on Willoughby Street, there was definitely a guy that, he wasn't named Sweet Dick Willie, but he was definitely that guy that
0: was, <laughs> you know, Wait.
2: just neighborhood talking shit and whatever. And to be honest with you, the mayor, as Ozzie Davis uh, was, like, that... Uh, I feel like I I have a drink with him every time I go to Junior's. So, tell you the truth, oh yeah, there's a a gentleman that that hangs out um, at the original Junior's in Brooklyn. uh, And he is basically that guy. Everybody knows him. He's, you know, not not shying away from a drink that's put in front of him. And he's got an opinion and something slick to say about pretty much everything you can think of. you know this this is a nice broad stroke of life in brooklyn so the fact that these folks um created it like yes a- absolutely every one of them should get some should get some sort of props for what they did as an ensemble as you guys said and and one thing i did notice uh, you know now that i'm watching it as you know as not as grown me and not kid me um you know, it's like the use of the background characters. To 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 Amy's point, like if you're the the focus may very well have been on Ozzy, but you can often see a very motivated uh, supporting character doing something in the background, and and that was, you know, that was awesome in a sense because you know that basically meant that while they were doing that, there was no ego shit. Like, well, what do I mean? I got to do this in the back, and you know, and everything else like that. Everybody like really. Uh, you got the sense that there was, like, a real team camaraderie sense of things going on when they were shooting this. So, that you know, again, kudos to the ensemble.
1: Yes. It just, and even, and it's, it's strange to say this as a very pale white girl from the suburbs of New Jersey, but mm. it gives a feeling of almost universality because my dad in this tiny little town, like, he and his buddies, once they all retired, they'd go to the coffee shop every day. Right. And they'd get their coffee, and they'd shoot the shit for a couple hours. And that's what I imagine them to be like. And so seeing that, being able to make a connection with someone who obviously I have nothing in common with, it shows what a great movie it is. That you still can connect to it, even as a white female grown up in the suburbs. You know what I mean? That, that they're such real people. I loved them. I would love a cut of just all of their conversations. And weren't some of some of it was ad lib, if I read correctly? Oh, absolutely. And absolutely.
2: so that's so he, great. You well, uh, I I would imagine from Spike's perspective, you know, sitting Robin Harris alone, just sitting Robin Harris alone, <laughs> me, John, and I forget the other gentleman's name, but um, you know, Robin, you know, just just, just shoot the shit like you guys grew up on this block, and that, that's really probably all you had to say to the three of them and then they just go
1: off. <laughs> and it's oh god, I want to watch the movie again. I want to watch the movie again because now it's making me think of all their scenes.
0: Yeah. Well, you can, okay. but first we got to get through this. So we are going to take a short break and we've been talking about do the right thing a lot, but now after this break we're going to really talk about do the right thing and I think it's going to be a good one. So folks, stick around. We'll be right back. I'm a drunk what did i tell you about drinking in front of my stoop move on you're blocking my view you are ugly enough don't stare at me the evil eye doesn't work on me
2: mother sister you've been talking about me for 18 years what have i ever done to you you're a drunk fool besides that the mayor don't bother nobody and nobody don't bother the man but you The man just tend to his own business. I love everybody. I even love you.
0: Hold your tongue. You don't have that much love.
2: One day, you're gonna be nice to me. We may both be dead and buried, but you're gonna be nice,
1: at least civil.
0: Do the Right Thing tells the story of a neighborhood over a very hot summer day over the course of a single day where we meet all sorts of characters and things go down, person dies, and we have to deal with the consequences of that. Now I wrote so many notes for this, but I literally have no idea where to begin because any any part we can talk about the actors and then we'll just go off and talk about them for 30 minutes like what like we have. Can write about the message that Spike is trying to say and that'll be the entire conversation. We won't even get to talk about the te- you know the technique, the craft involved, Spike's entire film ouvre. Uh so I I'm gonna I'm gonna toss this to you. SVP, guest, where would you like to begin the conversation on Do the Right Thing if you have a
2: well, some place? Um I'd say one of the great things about the movie is how it seamlessly goes from being very funny to very revealing to very serious, and then almost full circle. Not quite so lighthearted, but definitely like uh, in a place of well, this this is just this this is the situation. Take you know, take it home with you. Do with it what you will, kind of a at least that's how I kind of uh that's how I treated the ending. Um but yeah, the the transition from being very funny, very amusing, very, you know, almost slapsticky at one point, And then of course you have that undercurrent of John Turturro's character's uh anger all pretty much all the way throughout. And then that kind of brings us over to what happens to Radio Rahim. Um and, of course, the sad thing is what happened to Radio Raheem uh, um, is it, probably the most jarring thing. Uh, uh, and it's one of those things where black people are like, yeah, that's, you know, that's what goes on. And people that don't know any better are like, wait, whoa, what do you, what do you mean they just drove off with him dead in the backseat of the car? Like, that's, you know, like I could see sheltered people not quite getting that or... Or believing it or understanding it or, or anything like that. It's like, <clears throat> it's like, uh, the meme that's floating around the internet now, it's like the police brutality is not new. What's new is the cameras, you know? Right.
0: Uh, the awareness of it.
2: Right. The awareness. Exactly. So, you know, and, and it's interesting because, you know, just going over the whole thing, it, it, it's not necessarily sad, but it is Um, It is kind of a wake-up call uh, in the sense that, you know, we're talking about 1989, and, you know, when you look at the issues that are brought up in the movie, not a whole lot has changed, you know, and and the thing that, one thing that I forgot or kind of overlooked as a kid or whatever, there is a gentrification mention in this movie. John Savage. the the, kids. That's right. The kids confront the that, that that um the bicyclist and have the whole moment with him. Um, you know, a, a, and it's some things are the same. Some things are actually worse. So you know, it, it, it's you know it, it. The movie will leave you if you watch it now. We watch it now with the eyes of a 2018 adult. Um, it will leave you in a very contemplative mood. At least that's what it did to me in that respect, in, in terms of um in terms of the social issues that the movie does try
0: to address. Yes. Agreed. Um outside of questionable eighties fashion.
2: <laughs>
1: Which <it's, laughs> didn't seem but it didn't seem that dated to me for some reason. It wasn't I don't know. It's like yeah, it, they were eighties stuff, but it didn't seem so like it didn't take me out of the movie. You know what I'm saying? Right.
0: But yeah, you know, no, yeah, no, yeah, I mean, it's not really else else looking, but, like,
2: that out there. Way <laughs> worse stuff out there. I, I, I mean, any random episode of the Cosby show will show you way worse clothes yeah. than a lot of the
1: stuff that do the right thing. And nowadays, right. Radio Raheem would be have his little iPhone, so a lot of the problems wouldn't be, you know what I mean, yeah, instead I mean. of having the big, huge phone box, which nowadays people would be like, what the fuck is that thing?
0: Yeah. Why doesn't he just
1: have a knife? You know, everything stored on his phone and listening with the earbuds. There's a
0: Walkman or a Discman. Yeah. Well, I, I think okay. Outside of the outside of the the fashion and the like, the technology, like yeah, it would be, it would be much different if they had cell phones. People would be recording the the final riot. It'd, it'd be it'd be, it'd be much more technologically minded but movie. But the
1: story is completely. But yes, universal. it's the story. It's it could still... happen tomorrow.
0: Yeah, so that, that that was literally the thing. I'm like, this not only happened tomorrow, this probably happened yesterday and every other day somewhere in some very, you know, black majority neighborhood in an urban environment in America. It's, it, there's no, like, this, they, we as a society are still dealing with all of this. And sure, the clothes have changed, the technology has changed, the human nature really. Haven't progressed as much as we should have in thirty years, having gone through the Clinton administration, the New millennia, Obama, all of that. We're still uh, stuck. Yeah, we're still we're still stuck in, in nineteen eighty nine, in whatever whatever year you want to you want to con you want, you want to say it's. We're still we're still there. We still have such a very very long way to and, go in and addressing I said this. this
1: when we talked about another movie, but just, you know, it, the summer's this anniversary of Dylan Roof, the little white teenager shooting up the black church in Charleston. Yeah. Yeah. That kid was from Lexington, South Carolina. That is where I live. That is my town. He went as a freshman to white high school where my friend teaches math. That really hit home. You know what I mean? So certain things, Certain tragedies hit you more for some reason when it happens closer to where you live. Yeah, you know right. what I'm saying? Um, like 9-11, having 11 people from my hometown killed hit me more than maybe it would have if I lived somewhere else. But to say that racism is totally alive, yeah, that was only a couple years ago. And I remember it. And I remember going, wow, that's awful. Because, you know, you think, oh, South Carolina. But then, oh, he's from Lexington, South Carolina. I'm like, oh, my God.
0: Yeah. This kid, yeah. Um, you
1: know, could have lived near yeah. me.
0: It's, it's Comes home. It comes home. Very jarring. Very jarring. One of the one of the scenes that always stands out because it's so different than a lot of movies is the it's a couple of push in interviews where the characters are just going off on a race of their choice. John Turturro's talking shit about black people you know, Mookie's talking shit about, you know, white people, Italians, and it, it, it goes on and on. And, uh, hey, apart from being admittedly kind of funny, and del- when it's delivered by these actors, it you're like, ah, this is, like, it's it feels awkward, but it's this is really good. What is, what is, I guess, what is Spike trying to s- tell us in that scene? Because that's very much the like the inner dialogue, the inner monologue of these characters, so uh, and by extension of Spike himself, what is what? So what? What is what is it? What is he saying? Is he try? Is he just trying to provoke a reaction, or is he hinting at something a little bit deeper in terms of, I suppose, one's group to punch down on another group, regardless of where the first group is and how and uh, in a, the nature of hate and prejudice in in people in general
2: mm-hmm. <clears throat> um well you know it, it, again it's funny you, you watching it as a kid it was just you know it was a laugh but now it it, it i hate to say it but he, i feel like he's addressing a like an existing undercurrent. Getting back to the John Turturro, you know, just constantly being angry because, <clears throat> um, you know, he he just hates being there. I'm going to I'm going to float a theory that one of the reasons that John Turturro's character is, um, just just that monologue personified, is is from the fact that, you know, he probably tried to deliver pizzas and probably got punked. A few times, so that's why Mookie got hired in the first place. You know, hmm. um, a really
1: interesting thought. I hadn't thought about that.
2: Yeah, you know, just you know, I had a little free time. So um, <laughs> you know, and, and from that end, and just his constant railing against Mookie and the whole thing, and then you and you flip it over to everybody else again. It's a proximity thing. Now, you know, you guys both talked about you know not having yeah, you know, but not having a lot of people of color around in your specific childhoods. Um, I had the exact, being a Brooklynite, I had the exact opposite. We had everything in the building, everything that you could possibly imagine. And we all got along because when it came time to play basketball or it came time to play football, you know, who was that, who, who was outside, you know? And, it, and it's like all that, you know, negative stuff and whatever, you know, it just didn't come into play. What else? But what else comes into play in the do the right thing block is economic disparity, in the sense that you've got a business owner that is more or less taking money out of the community, but then you have a community that needs to eat, and then you have a Korean grocer who is also, um, you know, benefiting from being there, because as Danny Aiello's character brings up, you know, he well, he, he can't open up his pizza shop in in Vincent because There's a million pizza shops at Bensonhurst. He's not going to make that money. Um, You know, and and then then you have the the situation with the black characters who are aware of the fact that they are contributing to businesses uh, that, um, you know, aren't necessarily doing anything other than the bare minimum. You know, it's not like, you know, it's like, okay, so, you know, uh, I made... $100,000 $100,000 this week, so now everybody eats pizza free for a day or, you know, or something like that. Like, none of that stuff is happening, and you know, and, and the, the three gentlemen, Robin Harris, Frank Frankie Faison, and the other gentleman they actually touch on that whole, you know, well, we can't open a business, and we can't do that, and <clears throat> so when you get to the, 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 the race rant push-ins, um, I think that all of that just kind of contributes to it in, in this weird sort of, you know, not only you know, not only being resentful of, you know, the people of the other race in the neighborhood, but it's also the matter of the fact that they're resentful of their own situations. Because ultimately, you know, in Trump America, you know, how how do people like Trump get elected? Is because people are blaming other people for their situations outside of themselves. So, right. it, it you know, in a way it kind of ties in because, you know, uh, those, the, all of those rants are very hateful rants, even though they're funny, they're very hateful rants. And hate, unfortunately, starts at home. So if, if you're resentful of yourself for some reason, then because of your situation, then you're going to project hate
0: to other people. Right. Which I guess leads to uh Giancarlo Esposito's character bugging out, who first of all, when I let's just say when I first saw him, I was like, oh shit, it's Gus Fring.
2: Jesus. Is that he's, right? It's
0: so he's so very so very amazing. different. He's Oh, he's so great. Oh uh, he, he, he he he's so great, but
1: talk about how you what you what you, what what, what you Good Lord.
0: Oh yeah he's, but what you what you bring up about the economic disparity, that's something I like, I actually didn't write down in my notes because I'm, 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 I'm silly. But he is, uh, he he's he's a bit of the catalyst. He is upset that Sal does not have any pictures of, you know, famous Black Americans right. at all on 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 his wall, despite having his business in a predominantly Black neighborhood. And I think the the younger part of me would go. Well, who cares this is a private business he doesn't have to do that but what you say about the you know he's sal is, sal is, sal, is, sal is for all of his pros and definitely his cons he is actually taking money out of this neighborhood and i it, it was only upon reflection realizing that i am siding a bit more with bugging out in terms of yeah i i i get that and the and you know in these days when protesting does you know can't affect change or at least bring about awareness i am a bit more on bugging Out's uh bugging outside like i get it, you know and you know and he, when he's trying to get people to join in in this protest everyone's like yeah but he gives us food but it seems as though bugging only you know he really gets the the broader picture he's he's there uh, not as the greek chorus as it were but as the the to do make us aware of the way things are, mm-hmm. not just not just on a day-to-day basis, but systemically, how this is a it's a systemic issue. Someone like Sal. And like someone like Sal can have a pizza place in a, some, something like in a place like Bedside. He, he said he's been there for 25 years, thereabouts. That's about the time when they started really racializing the neighborhoods. In in New York City in, in New York City and the the white flight you know began in earnest. So he's he he's stuck around. So like yeah, okay, he has a history there and, and whatnot. But
1: well, like the guy he, who launched the brownstone, he had been there for a long time too.
0: Yeah, he moved to Boston. You was know, like from Brooklyn, Brooklyn and whatnot. And it, uh, I guess ultimately, it's I I hear I hear I hear I hear you bugging out. I I do and uh just what. Why do you think Spike chose the chose the pictures to real to help make that make that statement uh, about just uh, society in general?
1: I think it's it's complicated. I think when you say you you can see both sides of it, and I think really that's kind of what the whole movie is about. But I think he did the pictures because that is something that bugging out would notice. Yeah, because it's something he small. seems. It is. It's something small, and it's something that, and this is the brilliance of it, it seems like such a trivial thing, and it's such a realistic thing. If you go to pizzerias in Brooklyn, like, that's what you see. You know, you see the pictures in any Italian restaurant, you're Mm going to see that. And so it's so something that's so common and so, quote-unquote, normal, that to even question it seems crazy. And the way that Bugginow is presented is I love that he's not the mayor. He's not this profound, almost seems like a prophet kind of a character. He seems, he's got the crazy hair. He's got the way that the way that he talks seems, you know what I mean? Like he seems like, oh, you're crazy. Just shut up and eat your pizza. You know what I'm saying? And yet what he's saying is so important, and I think that that's the brilliance of it. It's not heavy-handed at all. And so that's why throughout the entire movie, everyone's just like, dude, I eat at Sal's every day. Shut up. Which is basically how we treated the entire time, until the very end, and he's had time to build up this anger, because when he, it's that final confrontation at, at Sal's is my humble opinion, one of the greatest film scenes ever made, because the movie is called Do the Right Thing, and in so many ways, did anybody do the right thing, or were they all wrong in a way, because where you are in life affects how you see this, am I right? Do we all kind of agree on that? That that if you watch it at different points in your life, and different experiences that you have, um, every year as a teacher... I have to go through CPI training, which is if you have to actually physically restrain a student, there's all these moves that you have to do. And we get this training every year. And one of the biggest things that they teach us is how to deescalate a situation. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Is if someone's ranting and raving at you, if you yell back, you're putting your life in danger. And our principal talked about how he taught in West Virginia, and there was a teacher that sent a kid out of the room, and instead of just letting the kid leave, she kept needling him and, him and pushing him and pushing him and pushing him and pushing him. And the kid ended up punching her in the face. so so I watch it now, and it sounds so lame coming from me, but just being like, Sal, put the baseball bat down, Sal. Maybe listen to your customer. Maybe he's got a good point. You know, Radio Raheem, maybe we turn off the radio. You know what I'm saying? Like, I want to go in there and just, like, mediate. Because it's it's the middle school teacher in me to be like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Let's all take a breath now. It's okay. And I've had to physically break up kids who were about to fight and be like, let's all take a deep breath and take a step back. And how you have to bring everything down. But everyone just kept... But these were the personalities of the characters. They're all just pushing and pushing and pushing and pushing right. to a sad and sadly inevitable conclusion. Did that make any sense? My little monologue right there, I don't know. No, it, it,
0: yeah. it, it, it did. It, it pushed to a boiling point. You know, but they
1: were all wrong. He came in looking for a fight. Now yeah. bringing out the baseball bat at that point did not de-escalate the situation. But and then as soon as he had his rant, <laughs> Sal had the other kids in the pizzeria in his corner until he started his rant, use the N-word. Instantly, he lost everyone in that store. Yep. yep. And he had you know, and then bashing it. You know what I'm saying? So if he had just, if they hadn't come in how they did and they said, hey, Sal, let's talk. And Sal said, oh, let me listen to you. You know what? You're right. Maybe I could put up a couple pictures. Whole thing could have been avoided.
0: But that would rob us of one of the, the greatest cinema ever. cinema. <laughs> uh, certainly. But uh, I'm, I'm going to table the discussion about what is the right and wrong thing and move over to Sal, Danny Ayale. He's, he's a great character. Uh, he has two sons. He has, uh, what, Vito and um,
1: Vino? Sonny? Sonny. No,
0: Vino. Sorry, Vino? Vino. Pino, Pino, Pino. Pino and Sonny. You have uh, John Turturro, who's the. Mm-hmm. Wild, out and out racist, but we say hate starts at home. What uh we? I'm on, I'm on Sal's side for most of the movie. I like, I like. Okay, I Sal, Sal, I like you. You're Danny Iao. Like who doesn't like Danny Ayo and like and anything he's in. Then he, then he, he does go on this rant, and does he lose you? As does how much respect does he lose? Does he become? Just as bad as John Turturro, who is blatant in his uh, racism and his prejudice and hatred of uh, the of the the black the black community, or is he somehow worse because he is hiding it? Because he is, we realize that maybe he got maybe he gave Mookie this particular job because a he needed somebody who can you know some some neighborhood kid who could deliver things you know un you know un, unhindered. And also because he's got a really hot sister that Danny Ayo likes. How, do we, how does our perspective on him change after the end, of, during the confrontation? Do we, how, how much respect do we lose for him if there was any respect to be lost? <clears throat> um,
2: I don't know if I necessarily lost respect. And the only reason I say that is because, you know, there's been times I've lost my temper. Um, and in that have have said things that were regrettable uh, mm-hmm. now that being said uh, I think the bigger picture is not, not even so much that he says what he says or that he goes into this outburst it's Spike's overall message of people are in our community making money and this is what they're capable of when they're not being real or in front of us um you know and not to say that he's not provoked i mean you know bugging out does have a point and bugging out getting back to him for one second you know to me he's the reflection of how a lot of folks in the black community feel in terms of just not having any control of your fucking environment um as I look out here now in the gentrification situation, you know, and people constantly being outpriced out of their uh, places and having to go someplace else, um, you know, Fort Greene, where I grew up, like most of my, you know, remember I was talking about all of the, the, the wide range of diverse kids that I would be out in the street playing with. Most of them and their families have been priced out, gone. My mother is probably like, one of the last of the Mohicans on my block. And now when I go see her, people are looking at me funny. So, you know, to, to a degree, bugging out, even though it's not his store, he really does not, you know, for me, it's like, like if I was running a store and somebody came in and said, you know, it's something outside of buying what's in the store, like, hey, well, why don't you do this, why don't you do that? I'd be like, ah, eh, you know, take it under advisement and, and, and kind of keep things moving but I probably wouldn't take it seriously because, hey, not your fucking store. So that right. plus the heat, plus no one being very kind with their words leading up to all of this. And, you know, Radio Rahim of course, kind of a guy that's used to having his own way because he's Radio Huge. Yeah, yeah, exactly. He's um,
1: enormous.
2: At least at least a head above almost everybody else in the movie. Um, so all of that together is what provokes Danny's character. Do I approve of the language? Of course not. But, um, you know, that plus the heat. And the heat is practically a character in the movie in and of itself. Yeah. So, you know, you add all of that up together, of course there's going to be an outburst, you know, and in which case you would love for somebody like Amy to walk into the pizza shop all of a sudden and be like, Okay, guys, guys, this doesn't yes. win end well for anybody. Everybody calm down, you know, you know. It's
1: it's hard and it makes and again, I'm sorry, I'm getting into such personal things here, but my husband taught in Sumter, South Carolina. My husband who's like five seven, hundred and thirty five pounds. Oh dear. Paint a picture. Oh, okay. Um and Sumter is very black, and it was a school where they're li- legitimately they have gang fights, and right. so and he was at the alternative school where they send all the kids who get expelled.
2: Oh wow! Oh.
1: So that was his first two years teaching, and I when he got put to Sumter High School, he to meet and he met with the principal. The principal's like, I can't meet with you now. We have a kid who brought a gun to school. I'll get back with you, like that kind of school. Mm, right. And. His first thing, when and he watched this with me, is he's like, you can't yell at these kids when they do something wrong. He's like, you just can't. You can't escalate because these kids are taller than you. You know what I mean? And they've got the anger. And so, but you need to be trained for that. And, like, and I'm glad that you said what you said about Cell because, because yeah, for part some of the movie, I'm like, Radio Levine, just... Like turn your radio down, dude. Like, yeah, that's obnoxious. If someone came in to me, I'd be like, I probably would call the cops. I mean, as a female, that would intimidate me and make me frightened. And the way that he was, when he was dealing with the Koreans in the Korean store, and they couldn't understand right. what he was saying, and he's he's acting like an asshole. Right. So I liked, but I liked that he was brave enough to not paint anybody like a saint or a martyr.
2: Right. You know what I mean? Right. That you
1: could see why, why he was angry when ALO. But when people say, "Oh, he got killed because he didn't turn his radio down," he was choking Danny ALO. I thought Danny ALO was going to die the first time I saw the movie. Mm. Right. So. It wasn't like Danny Aiello was attacking him and then the cops you know what I'm saying? It's like he was about to kill someone. So... That
0: doesn't doesn't give the cops the right to do it.
1: And I don't mean that it justifies it because it doesn't. But I like that the situation was so complicated. It's not just this white, this black saint gets killed. You know what I'm saying? Sure. He he makes them all these complicated characters where you agree, like you said, you agree with what Bugging Out is saying, but at the same time, if you were business over and someone came in and was kind of ranting the way that Bugging Out was, you'd be like, yeah, uh, great idea. I'll, I'll think about that. And then you'd be like, this fucking guy. You know what I mean? you just right, kind of try to get him out of the store. But that we can all admit that that's how we would do what we would do with the heat, with the fact that this kid came into a store several times throughout the day. Mm-hmm and was pushing those buttons, pushing those buttons. Rather than just making it a clear-cut, here's this really innocent saint, and here, you know what I mean? No one's right. really completely right, no one's completely wrong, and I think that's... You know, well, except I for Sean like... Turturro, he's pretty much an asshole. But, but even yeah. that, like you said, he there's clearly a history there. He's not just this static villain character. He's just mean... Just for the sake of being mean,
0: right? right. Yeah, in. Everyone's interesting. The relationships between everyone are very complicated. I think that's why Spike shows all of these ver- these various groups interacting with each other throughout the day. Of the the mayor, you have mother sister, you have and Martin Lawrence and his crew. All
1: one thing about the mayor that I want to say is is even the mayor, you see how he is. He's a prophet, and how he comes in, and right before they set the place on fire, he's like, Sal wasn't responsible for that. Like, that was the cop. Like, don't just funnel all that energy here. So you see him, and he seems very wise and almost like a prophet. But those rude teenagers who are kind of taunting him a little bit, and he's like, I know your mother raised you better than that. And the guy's like, dude, get a fucking job. Stop drinking. And you're sort of like,
0: do something with your life. That's,
1: yeah, do something with your life. And part of you is like, That's actually kind of a good point. You know right, what I mean? Right. And and Ruby D who you're ugly and, Oh, she was so funny. God, I looked her in the survey. <laughs> but again, just that no character was just good, bad.
2: Right. Everybody has had-
1: all these layers and you can easily see where different people are coming from. I've never gone on a racist because I just that's just not how I am. Yet, yeah, you could see why John, Titura, John, excuse me, I want to say John Stewart, Danny Aiello, how when he comes in at the end, he's like, turn your radio off, like, get out of my store, you're not buying anything. He was disrupting <clears throat> the piece. He was trying right. to start something up, which isn't necessarily the right way to handle it either. And I liked that. I think Spike Lee's very brave for showing all those layers. Absolutely.
2: And and going back to the Radio Raheem and the radio itself, it, it, it to me that also ties into the thing with bugging out and the wall and everything else like that. It's like the black community, black men coming up as children in these in these neighborhoods. Again, you have no control over your environment. And and unlike other neighborhoods, you tend to be in an unstable environment. So that kind of weighs on you. So you know, so that can lend to doing things like walking around blasting a radio that can lend to expecting somebody to put a picture up on a wall that you don't own that, that, you know, or coming up with that idea in the first place. Like a lot of that, because like I said, going back to, you know, gentrification of Fort Greene, you know, it's like you, just, you turn around, all of a sudden there's a building up, like, where did that, like, you know, where your, where your favorite shoe store or something like that used to be. Now, all of a sudden it's like a building with a bunch of people who, when they walk past you in the street, look at you like you're a piece of shit, and it's like, "Wait, whoa, what huh? you know it's so and, uh, go ahead Amy.
1: sorry, speaking of shoes and having control um bugging out with his sneakers, right, and you see him oh, with yeah, the tooth- yours. and you see him with the toothbrush and how much pride he had in his sneakers, which again seems like such a small thing, but they're in there for a reason,
2: yeah, and yeah. him in the a lot of. A lot of folks, sneakers are a big deal. You know, it's a status symbol. It's, uh, you know, part of the culture, so to speak. So um, that that again, very dead on. And yeah, I, and, and especially back then, I knew, knew plenty of cats who were, you know, sneaker fiends, and and, and <laughs> had to, you know, had the newest, latest, and this and that, whatever. And you know, once you get a little older and really get a sense of what you know. A, a buck cost, and you know, you then you start thinking about the kids in the sweatshops. Then you're not so worked up over it. <laughs> you know? Yeah. If you don't have that perspective, then you don't have that perspective.
0: You mentioned SVP the the lack of control that a lot of the characters, especially the young men in this neighborhood, feel. And I think, oftentimes, I remember reading about the Rodney King riots, which happened a few years later. Mm-hmm. About why are why are they destroying their own neighborhood? This is they're not they're not they're not going into Beverly Hills and <coughs> trash and, and trash and all that place. No, they're 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 riding they're they're riding in their own Beverly Hills. They're going to
2: get kicked. They're going to get picked off from some sniper rifle one by one. So yeah, you, I mean, they, I mean, exactly. Yeah, you know, exactly, exa- um, exactly.
0: So 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 the so this lack of control like they need to feel in control of something they need to feel the power of something and that's why mookie i think and you know he tosses the trash can through the window and everybody then just they they, they ransack it they burn the place down and that's because this is the only way they can gain the gain the power back from the system as defined by deniaelo and in, uh, to a much greater extent the the cops who come in choke Rahim and then just 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 disappear into the night because' it's the 80s and that's what cops do that's like, what cops still do uh and it's actually well, I it hadn't had not had not thought about that how it, this is them taking their taking their power their power back and the only way they, a,
2: only way they can yeah it's,
0: like, yeah, the, yeah the only way they're like sort of narrowly defined to be able to take their power back even though they'll still get you know you know, talking you know, criticism and, and and whatnot about that, which of course does bring to the point. Uh, I think Spike has over the years said that the only people who ever ask him if Mookie did the right thing were us, were white critics, and we'll assume white guys. But I, I do want to ask: Does Mookie do the right thing by start by starting things up by tossing the tossing the trash can through?
2: <laughs> um, to be honest, I'm a little on the fence about that. Uh, I mean, obviously, if I have a friend murdered in front of me, I, if I, if I'm allowed to respond, I'm going to probably respond in some sort of unpredictable way. And, you know, and, and, and and that's that. I mean, like I said, they didn't, they didn't really establish that the two of them, I mean, they obviously were friends, but, um, you know, it's only a two-hour movie, so you can't really get into the whole backstory and everything like that. But um you know, just getting back to the point that this, again, and the cops are another symbol of no control of your environment. You know, so when Radio Rahim is killed, I think that because like Danny Aiello's character has his boiling point, Buki has his, so it's separate boiling points. Let's call it that. Um, I thing uh, I mean, if, if you're going to just, if you're not going to give me a choice, then I have to say yes, because he is doing death, you know? I, and that's, that's basically how, you know, if I'm going to have to be cut and dry about it, then that's how, I, but if I'm going to do layers and layers and layers, then obviously there's other arguments. Um, yeah, uh, you know, that that's a tough one, but, yeah, that's my, more or less my answer. Yeah.
1: I love that's, that's that, of, on a technical standpoint, almost off the subject, but just, I love the way that that's filmed, when it shows Mookie and he just kind of slowly turns his head, that shot, for some reason, is very powerful to me and really stands out to me in the film. Not to totally get off topic, but while we're talking about that scene, no, oh, cinematically, it's, 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 just that it's,
0: it's slow right.
1: turn of mm-hmm. his head, you know what I'm talking about?
0: Yeah. And, the the music. Wheels are turning.
1: yeah. and his eyes, and it's like, Lee should have been nominated for an Academy Award for that, like the way that he turned his head, that subtle <laughs> movement, because he looks angry. He looks exhausted. He looks tired of like, this is always what's going to happen. Mm-hmm. Like the weight of the world is on his shoulders. There's so much going on, and all it is is just him turning his head. You know what I'm saying? That he's able to capture all those things. And that even when he takes it and he yells, What? Hate? And throws the trash can. Is that what he says? He says, Hate? Am I wrong? Anybody? Oh, okay. Uh-
2: is it hate? That's a. I'm thinking it's not, but I. But I don't. Or no,
1: or something <laughs> like that. But that he's not wild I, out of control. He is very much burning, taking it up. Doesn't run. Sort of walks, and then throws it through the window. It's not this wild out of control. The way that Ayello was when he gave his rant and ended up smashing up the radio. You know what I mean? It wasn't like that. It was very controlled, very calculated, and the way that it was filmed was just absolutely brilliant because you needed to have that moment before the chaos, before the mayhem ensued, so to speak, (laughs) to quote the great Amy Thomason.
2: I'll take it one step further and say that along with it, being a, a slow, methodical walk, I think, well, there's multiple purposes. So, again, going back to my theory about Mookie being hired because if you send one of the sons out, you don't know exactly what's going to happen to him, Um, you know, on pizza deliveries.
1: Again, uh, such a good point, and I never would have thought about it. So really, Like, I really appreciate you bringing that up because that's such a good point.
2: Well, you know, it's it, it just <laughs> something that I came up with because it it – because the two boys are there. So it's like, wait, why aren't they delivering the pizzas? So, you know, it, it's like that's what made sense to me, if, you know, now that I've, I have had a chance to think about it. But basically what happens is so if Mookie is the one delivering the pizza, then Mookie is kind of the neighborhood ambassador for the pizza shop. Right. So when the yep. pizza does wrong, the neighborhood, in essence, is looking at Mookie to address that. At least that's, you know, without, it's one of those things that, to me, would be said but not said, if that makes any sense. Like And it, they it, use
1: him that way several cool. times throughout the film, too. Bugging Out says to him, doesn't this bother you that he doesn't have any pictures up on the wall? And Mookie's just like, dude, shut the fuck up. Like, go away. Leave my well, store.
2: At that point, at that point, he's just trying to make sure he gets his money. And, and, and right. All yes. That. Trying to pay,
0: trying, yeah. Santina, trying to support a son.
2: Right. No one's died yet. That's the, you know, that's the, the bigger part of that. Um, but the other, the other thing that I was thinking about also is because, um, Sal and Sons could have easily gotten physically injured. So I feel like when Mookie, excuse me, when Mookie made the move to destroy the pizza shop, he in essence helped them not be physically harmed. Because I've everybody, and I've
1: read that, I've read that theory Yeah,
2: the pizza shop. Right. Everybody turned their rage on the pizza shop and not those three. Because that, you know, let's face it, that could have been part of the equation. That could have gone south real easy.
1: That was pretty much about really? to happen. And, yes. and yeah. Sal, at that point, really, I mean, Radio Raheem, like, had a death grip on his throat. So, like, I thought Sal was going to die at that point. The first time I saw it, I was like, oh my God. But. True, and he is torn between both because on one hand he needs Sal, and on one hand this is his neighborhood.
0: Right, right, and yeah, you, know, you know, you have this, you have these people coming into our neighborhood, taking up business away, but I, but I need that business to support my life. You know, you know, criticism of capitalism, and, and you know, you know, we have all those things, and it's also he has to make the choice between his people and his employer, and he chooses his people, whether that's to save the employer. Whether that's out of uh, just I don't know, inherent tribalism that is just a basic part of human nature, yeah. uh, or any number of other reasons, is what makes the decision great, ambiguous, neither right nor wrong, and uh, just a very powerful moment in uh, not 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 just the film, the film, but in film history. Like this is a, it felt like a turning point in terms of and movie-making and in general, and we are, uh, we are going long, but I do have one other question. We're going to bring it to 2018. We have social media, and in the last couple of years, the Oscars have been resoundingly criticized for lack of diversity, lack of representation, and last year there was a big push to have Get Out, one of the uh, few horror films written by uh, Jordan Peele to be nominated for Best Picture and end up winning Best Screenplay. but People were very adamant that this film should win Best Picture. And so I was wondering, how do you think, if they had Twitter back in 1989, what the film Twitter consensus and uh, feeling would be about this movie um, getting snubbed for Best Picture?
2: Oh, black Twitter would have lost its collective fucking mind. Um, as, as it would have... In a variety of other instances, Will Smith getting a Grammy over Chuck D, um, and if you think back, going back to "Fight the Power" for a second, that could have, could have, and should have uh, easily been. And look, I put it like this: if it's hard out here for a pimp to get a fucking Oscar, then "Fight the Power" should have preceded that. At least that's my thought. But
1: I was uh, wondering that too. Could what was it? Did that come out with that movie, or would that not have been nominated as a technicality because it wasn't actually written for? You know what I'm saying? Because I thought the same thing. I'm like, hello, best song.
2: I wouldn't necessarily know what the actual, uh, what the actual rule is on that, but you know, it, just the simple fact that, um, it's such a powerful song. I mean, I I thought that yeah. should, that in itself should have got. You know, some some more, no, I mean, I it, what, it got what it, you know, it got the attention that it deserved, obviously, to some degree. But, um, you know, like I said, you know, then you fast forward and it's hard out here for a pimp won an Oscar. And it's like, okay, uh, you know, it, it's, yeah, you know, that's a, that's a little 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 thing that, you know, you have to kind of look at. just kind of like, uh, but you know what, the, the overall, I feel like with the nomination, nations and everything um, you know and, and black Twitter's reaction to various injustices and inconsistencies um, you know I, I, I want to say there would have been just the simple fact that spikes um, kind of uh, his outspoken nature with uh, his relationship with Hollywood and how you know at, at times it, very contentious very contentious and I don't think that helped anything especially back in 1989 when you had you know a lot more older white men who probably would have were sitting some back in back in some cigar room saying yeah, well, what, what what's this guy talking about you know and and being <laughs> much more you know just visceral with their criticism of Lee so um but yeah to, but to, to answer your point point, to answer your question yeah black Twitter would have been Like, beyond outraged and losing their minds, absolutely.
1: Especially since the eventual Best Picture was fucking driving missteps. that's
2: amazing. That's even
1: more of a slap in the face. And I bet the people, you know, whoever nominates the movies probably felt like they were covered, so to speak, for nominating. Oh, and they didn't nominate Glory for Best Picture. They didn't nominate either one.
0: Nope. No, they didn't. No, they didn't. Sure. But, 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 the, but, they probably took comfort in you know, as we addressed in *Driving Miss Daisy*. Well, this is a movie that addresses black issues. It's
1: got Morgan Freeman.
0: Sort in it. of. It's Morgan, it's Morgan Freeman. It's fine. Yeah. This will. This will be. This will be good. And it's uh, the and entire process is a little Society. flawed.
1: Yeah, and then *Dead Poet Society*, which I love, but is like the whitest white movie that ever.
0: Yeah. Hey, you know, as I, as I say, *Dead Poet Society*, or hey, rich white rich white boys got problems too, you know. <laughs>
1: They got
0: problems too. Absolutely, yeah. And uh, I, I believe the story goes: this film was up for the Palme d'Or at the Cannes Film Festival that year. Ultimately, Sex Lies and Videotape would take home the honors, but uh, the judging body—it's three or four filmmakers and actors, uh, actresses—were, I think, almost all of them were in agreement that Do the Right Thing should win, except for German director Wim Wenders, uh, which uh, the. (laughs) Uh, hmm. the optics of that are not lost on me. Said no, not uh, you know, not do the right thing. Like, it could have uh, that could have been something uh, something really, really special. All right. Uh, foregone conclusion, but I do want to hear the reasons. Did do the right thing? Deserve to be nominated for best picture in nineteen ninety nine? Absolutely.
2: Okay. Absolutely.
1: Yes.
0: Did it deserve to win? Yes. And yeah, probably win. Yeah. Uh, I think just listen to this podcast again and hear all the reasons why this is an astounding movie. And I do want uh, to give
1: a shout out to Samuel L. Jackson because he. this movie proves that in every single movie, he's always the coolest person who ever lived. And Rosie Perez for that opening dance because that Oh, that always gets me pumped up for the movie. We I it's not I don't have any reflections or connections or any of that. I just have to put it out there that Samuel L. Jackson as the DJ was a fucking badass. Samuel L. Jackson, call me, love you.
0: Yeah. As a great force in this. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Driving Miss Daisy, you know, Spike Recently, said an article like, Who watches Driving Miss Daisy? Besides us, because we're doing a podcast on it. And it is not, it's not, it it has not aged well at all. This movie, again, despite the, you know, what's a boombox, are they wearing spandex as real clothes? Come on, what's up with that? All that aside, this movie could have been made yesterday. Mm -hmm. Uh, You can make this movie every year and it could be nominated for Best Picture every single year. And it deserves to be. It is as relevant today. Maybe even more relevant with the advent of social media in terms of hey spike got there first this has been happening catch the fuck up um, driving Miss Daisy is whatever it's a film that I said during the podcast it dips its toe in the well of let's talk about racism and it's just this whereas Spike Lee takes you grabs you by the hair and shoves you down into it and makes you. And you can't look away until until the movie is over. It's like this, Damn. like you want to know what America is. Like this is a fucking America right here. There's little else to say at this point. I, mean, I think you know we could probably have a second episode talking about all the things we didn't talk about in this episode, just you know Spike and and Rosie Perez and uh, Bill Nunn, just everything. But uh, the Uh, We rightfully think that the Academy has made a huge mistake in adding a best popular film category as it essentially creates a ghetto uh, for popular films. Yeah, that's weird. And, uh, you know, like, that's a bad mistake. Is it as bad as not even nominating do the right thing and instead actually giving Driving Miss Daisy the best picture Oscar? I don't know if it's that bad because that was a terrible fucking decision. Like through and through, I don't like watching *Driving Miss Days Now I don't understand how anybody thought this was even a good movie. Right. But, exactly. It's uh, not.
1: And the thing is, you say, "Oh, it talks, it deals with racism." No, it doesn't. The racism no, is in the background. It because it takes place in the South in the 40s and 50s. That's it. That's it. And there's a scene with Martin Luther King. They never talk about racism, like ever. So it's just a terrible, terrible movie, and like I said, I can't even believe it won Pulitzer Prize for Best Play. Like, What is it about this story that people like? It's mind-boggling, and there's times that great movies don't win, like Raging Bull didn't win, but you know what? Ordinary People is actually a really good movie. Is it as good? No, but it's actually a very, it's a powerful story. You know what I mean? Like, sometimes, Dances with Wolves, it's not good, fellas, but it's not a it's not a piece of shit. It's not driving the Daisy. You know what I'm saying? Like, I get the wrong movie wins, but you know.
0: Hey, I mean, at hey, least we've been the doing this for 100 episodes. We know.
1: The movies that win are still fun. at least decent films.
2: Well, the sad thing the is, is, I mean, there's also, like I said, uh, Hollywood's relationship with Spike Lee had probably a lot to do with how the movie was treated when it was originally released. There's a political scene in entertainment, you know, and I'm sure you guys in previous episodes have hit this point many times. Um, but it's it's got to be a nefarious, ugly thing, and you know, and and within that is woven all these like consolation awards, and you know, the, who gets you know, the lifetime achievement and, and and all that other stuff, and all that little inner workings and. You know, back room conversations and all that other stuff affects all this you know stuff. Um, so you know it, it, it's it, it's unfortunate that these things are happening. but you know, going back to the to the the popular vote thing, I, I you know, and in what you, something you said earlier, Steve, about you know, um, just the <clears throat> just the regulating things to the kids' table. I think that's part of it too. It's like, well, we're still going to be the the very austere Oscar Academy Award that we are, but you know, just to quiet, you little, you know, phone carrying millennials. We're going to have a popular thing, and, and I guess we'll give that to Black Panther or, or, or something like. that. Yeah. You know what I mean, it's so it's so it's kind of um it's like it, it, to me it's like backhanded, condescending, BS. Yeah, but you know, I I, I guess we'll see how. How it shakes out in the end.
0: We will indeed. Uh, SVP Stephen Patton, thank you so much for joining us for uh, this very long and thoughtful, fruitful discussion on do the right thing. Well, thank you for so having- glad uh so glad to have you around. Yes. Uh, we need to hang out too. Yeah, you, me, and Kroll. Yeah. We need It'll to be- get yeah, together. Yeah,
1: you two go out and enjoy some like pizza. <laughs> yeah, we need to get some, some pizza. South Carolina, uh, uh, eating all right. uh, awesome grits and some boy- boiled peanuts. Olive boiled you <laughs> and You guys go have your fancy pizza. There
2: got to be a soul food joint out there somewhere. Come on.
0: Yeah. Get some barbecue. You you oh, you got you got you got your, you. You got it. your you got your cuisine. This is true.
1: Yeah. Sure. Don't,
0: don't don't feel. Don't feel bad. Don't feel bad. Uh SVP, where can folks uh get in touch with you on social media and online?
2: Um well, Facebook, you can uh um find me by my name, Stephen Van Patten. Uh, you find my main page, and author page, a few things like that. Uh, <clears throat> the website, www.laughingblackvampire.com uh, Twitter and Instagram, at SVP thinks. Where sometimes yes, a taste of what I'm thinking. Mm-hmm. Sometimes.
0: Like and, f- like, like and follow him, folks. Please, you owe it to yourself. He's uh, got great insights. Uh, killer knowledge of a lot of geeky, geeky shit out there. Uh, yeah. It's 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 great chat with you, Amy Thompson. Where can folks find you?
1: A Thompson eleven on Twitter or on our Facebook page.
0: Yes, please write in. You can drop us a line at OscarWatchPodcast at gmail and be sure to follow us on social media at OscarWatchPod. Next week we can we will continue our stopover in nineteen eighty nine with the Best Picture nominee, *My Left Foot*, starring Daniel Day Lewis. Oh wow, could be an interesting one. A, this is a complete 180 from this this film, but we just had to talk about do the right thing as soon as possible. So thank you so much for tuning in, and until next time, we'll see you on the red carpet.
1: Was
2: Elvis was most Elvis was a hero to most But he never meant to me It's he straight out racist The sucker was simple and plain Cause I'm black and I'm proud I'm Already black. I'm hyped cause I'm amped Most of my heroes don't appear in no stamp Sample I look at you looking fine Nothing but rednecks for 400 years if you check Don't worry be happy Was a number one jam Damn if I said you could slap me right, right here, here.